This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on the important issues of the last few weeks, namely steroids and COVID, long COVID, and the effects of the pandemic on mental health. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Matt Castleton, Section Editor and GP, and Emma Scott, Section Editor, who both work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Matt and steroids in the first instance, Matt, can you tell us about any new national or international guidelines on the use of steroids for the treatment of COVID-19? Yes, at the beginning of this month, um, both NICE in the UK and uh, internationally, the World Health Organization have issued further guidance on corticosteroids for treating COVID-19. NICE issued a prescribing briefing which comes attached to their uh, COVID-19 rapid guideline on critical care. That came a day or two after the WHO published some guidance uh, which was off the back of a a prospective meta-analysis that they uh, sponsored and and was published earlier this month. What's in the guidance? What does it say? Essentially the, the guidance reinforces the the results of the uh, recovery trial, which we have discussed on a previous podcast. It also brings in results from a, a couple of other trials. So there's a strong recommendation based on moderate certainty evidence to treat patients with severe and critical COVID-19 systemically with corticosteroids, incorporating the evidence from the other trials. That advice now extends to hydrocortisone, as well as dexamethasone. And it also comes with a a conditional recommendation not to use corticosteroid therapy in patients with milder COVID-19 or non-severe COVID-19. So the evidence is much less clear in this group. uh, And indeed, there is a potential for harm in, in these patients. Thanks, Matt. And do the guidelines uh, explain exactly what they mean by severe COVID-19? Is that somebody who's on a high dependency unit or an intensive care unit? Yes, I mean, essentially, the the rule of thumb that came out of the recovery trials maintained in the NICE guidance is that uh, these would be hospitalised patients dependent on oxygen or having mechanical, undergoing mechanical ventilation. The World Health Organization, they do have quite specific guidance on what constitutes severe and critical COVID-19, which sort of fleshes that out with a bit more detail. But um, essentially, yes, these are hospitalized patients who are dependent on on oxygen and or undergoing mechanical ventilation. Okay, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Um, What about UK guidelines on infection prevention and control. Are there any new ones of these? Yes, Public Health England updated their COVID-19 infection prevention and control guidance last month. There are some small changes in the the detail of the guidance and in particular these risk pathways that this new guidance describes. Tell us what are the, the key changes and why were they made? 
a couple of changes, I suppose, regarding um, personal protective equipment, so that sessional use of uh, single-use uh, PPE has been minimised. This only applies to face masks, essentially, and some of the, the, the reuse guidance that was introduced at the, the sort of acute phase of the pandemic has now been removed. It sort of reinforces the guidance now that all staff in hospitals and primary care settings should be using face masks and patients and visitors should be using face coverings uh, when they visit a, a healthcare setting. Otherwise, there's a change in approach in terms of how the guidance is structured. It's less setting-based uh, compared to the previous guidance, and these COVID risk pathways apply to different groups of patients across a range of different healthcare settings, potentially. So the idea is that the patients and staff within each risk pathway are kept separated uh, in place or potentially um, separated in time. Okay, thank you. And when you were talking about sessional use of PPE, what does that mean exactly? So the, the sessional use is if you use an item of PPE for a session of patient care, so that could be seeing patients on a ward round in hospital or seeing patients in a defined clinic. Previously, there was some detailed guidance about different PPE items that could be used in this way. Um, it's now sort of simplified. Really, it just applies to face masks uh, that can be used in that way. Potentially, you'd wear the same face mask on a ward round or for a clinic, but uh, gloves and other PPE items, um, I suppose, you know, when you're getting closer to the patient, essentially would still be disposed of between each patient contact. Okay, thank you. And um, let's move back to the the different groups, the high, medium and low risk groups. Um, tell us about how they work and how you decide what group a patient is in. The high risk pathway is for patients who have confirmed or suspected COVID-19. Uh, the medium risk pathway is for those who we don't know about, essentially. Uh, they don't, don't have COVID symptoms, but they haven't been tested either. And then the low risk pathway is for those with a very low likelihood of COVID-19 because they don't have symptoms and they have a negative test result. So it requires both those uh, criteria to be applied. Okay, thank you. That's that's very helpful, very clear. And let's move on to another subject, which is long COVID. And there's been a lot about this in the literature and the lay press recently. Tell us about long COVID. Last month, uh, there was the publication of Trish Greenall's paper in the BMJ that describes the emergence of these uh, sort of prolonged post-acute effects of COVID-19. This has triggered a lot of interest and I think recognition among patients and healthcare workers. I mean, these include respiratory symptoms that continue for, for weeks or potentially even months after the acute infection, cardiovascular symptoms such as chest tightness, the loss of smell or taste, again, can be quite prolonged and, and last for several weeks or, or months again. So there's a whole range of, of, of symptoms, uh, mental health problems as well, depression and anxiety and cognitive difficulties are, are quite frequently reported. So there's a this whole spectrum of protracted health problems that were highlighted in the BMJ paper. There's also been a brief Public Health England guidance paper that lists some of these problems and also signposts 
people to existing NHS guidance. So the online COVID recovery program, the your, yourcovidrecovery.nhs.uk, and uh, many clinicians will already be aware that there are post-COVID clinics starting up in, in local hospitals. The PhD document was also interesting in signposting a couple of big studies looking into this. So there's the post-hospitalisation COVID-19 study based in Leicester and a big international study, International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging Infection Consortium study. And they're currently recruiting participants to look into a long-term follow-up of patients with COVID-19. Okay, thank you. And is there, is there any recommended treatments or, or, or does it depend on what exact symptoms of long COVID that you have? This is such an emerging area. I, I don't think there's any clear programme of treatment yet for, for patients in this situation. Okay, thanks, Matt. Uh, let's move on to Emma. Um, Emma, there have been surveys on mental health and well-being of the general population during the pandemic. Can you tell us about the findings of these surveys? Yes. uh, In the UK, um, Public Health England has recently published a surveillance report that says self-reported mental health and well-being in the population worsened during the pandemic, with the largest decline happening in April. Um, Young adults and women were more likely to report worse mental health and also adults with low household income or socioeconomic position. One study highlighted by the report suggested that adults who had um, symptoms of COVID-19 were more likely to report high levels of mental distress and loneliness, but another study found no association when controlling for other factors. The report notes that there has since been some evidence of improvement in mental health um, of the population, but this isn't yet back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, The report is going to be regularly updated as more information becomes available. It's a similar picture in the US, uh, a survey of adults across the US during one week in June this year, 41% of respondents reported at least one mental health or behavioural health condition related to the pandemic, including symptoms of anxiety or depression, starting or increasing substance use to cope and seriously considering suicide. Young adults, minority racial and ethnic groups, um, unpaid carers and essential workers were all disproportionately affected. What comes out of this is an acknowledgement that the public health response to the pandemic needs to include both intervention and prevention measures um, addressing mental health and well-being for the general population. Okay, thanks very much, Emma and Matt, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on COVID-19 and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.